musings. You're going to enjoy it. It's going to be great. I don't know what I, what impression I was doing there. It's best not to think too hard about it. Firstly, I am joined in studio by Didasu Bilgin, uh, <laughs> a... Uh, I was going to say I was going to say content creator because you've worn a mm. lot of hats during the Persistence of Vision Film Festival, which is coming up this very weekend, which is the year-end showcase for UBC Film Production. Exactly, I couldn't have put it better myself. Now we've known each other for a while. We were both in Arts One together mm-hmm. four four years ago. <laughs> Long time. You know, the, the thing is that I like between the two of us, I have aged commensurately. <laughs> like I've aged double the time, you've aged half the time, so we we can even it out. Jake, I feel like you haven't changed at all, though. <laughs> It'd be sad if both of these things were true. <clears throat> but um, I remember, though, when we were in first year, because we, when the norm was still going, they had the Persistence of Vision screener there. Mm-hmm. And there were a few different productions. And there's some pretty high-quality productions, too, about some interesting stuff. Can you tell us a bit about what some of the features are for this Persistence of Vision? Yeah, absolutely. And I remember going to that. That was my first experience seeing a POV event. I was in first year at the time and I hadn't seen anything from the film production program and I was already really interested in applying. And sometimes it can be quite cutthroat getting into the program. So it was a good way to kind of get an idea. So if you're also a student out there interested in film, this is definitely the event for you. But um, yeah, POV, the Persistence of Vision Festival is an annual festival. This is the 29th year that it's going to be happening at UBC. Um, And it's essentially a showcase of all of the films that we work on throughout the year. Now, granted, the program uh, is separated into different years. Third years make six films and fourth years make however many films that they (laughs) want. Um, But on the basis of stats, uh, I think it's interesting to know that we have created, filmed, in full production, 22 films in the past four months, which is an upheaval in itself. uh, In just four months. In just four months. Yeah, it was definitely crazy, and it's a lot of people stretching thin. thin. Sometimes you don't really feel like a student. You just feel like you're working a job (laughs) because (laughs) starting from November, all of your weekends are uh, for other student films. Um, This year, I was a part of four. I was a key creative of four films that I'm so excited to screen. Jake was a part of one of them. Yeah, I was. I'm not sure if I can plug that, really, (laughs) but I am playing a radio announcer in that film. Very proper. So we can call it a cameo. Mm -hmm. Well, that particular film is called Breakaway. Uh, It's directed by Jenny Lee Gilmore and produced by me and shot by uh, Kate Smith. And it is a it is about a girl, an eleven year old girl named Sammy in uh, the nineteen seventies, who is a third generation Chinese Canadian, um, interested in hockey, mm-hmm. and uh, it's kind of about the trials of a of a girl interested in something so niche and not in her favor. And it's interesting in that respect because, as the announcer, I learned this that. Uh, this is this is in, in in the film is that the first Chinese Canadian hockey player was a player for Vancouver. Exactly, and we actually took the name and or did not get copyrighted and switched it up a little bit um, to Barry Wong, um, who's just kind of a play on the original name. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, that's definitely one to look out for. My film that I directed is called Ninety Nine Express. Um, it is a relatable dark topic. <laughs> it, actually, the name doesn't really uh, have that much significance on the film. But initially, when I had pitched it, I had pitched it on a bus, 
Uh, and that was the original reason for it being called 99 Express. But due to logistical errors and kind of having to find a bus, how are we going to film in a bus? What are the um, what are the ways in doing that? Um, it ended up kind of switching around and it became a hotel instead called 99 Express. Very, very similar things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, and I'm there's a there's an amazing film called the bunny which will probably be the longest film in pov history uh ranking at 30 minutes long i believe uh and that is about it's a kind of a dark drama dark family drama about uh two twins in the i believe it's in the 90s um yeah i'm definitely not a spokesperson for it since i wasn't a key creative but it has been something to kind of watch and see in class and i'm very excited to see the full thing in in person now, when you say key creative, because mm-hmm. each on each of these things, you've filled a different capacity. On Breakaway, you were a producer, exactly. uh, and you've directed, and you've edited. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is this sort of gestalt for you? Right. So uh, a key creative is kind of anybody above the line. Obviously, we're not in an industry. We're not being paid. But um, that kind of means somebody who has a creative input onto the outcome of the story. So you have the director, you have the producer, you have the um, cinematographer, the sometimes and often production designer, and then you also have the editor. Uh, and those are kind of key creatives that we essentially, the, since this is a class and a program, we get credit for doing those roles. Um, but everything else, uh, like if you gaff on a set, um, if you're a sound mixer on a set, if you sound design later on in post, those are all below the line jobs, but we all help out in any way we can. And although we don't get specific education for those roles most of what we learn happens hands-on happens on set we have class but everything that we kind of get out of it is by trial and error um yeah and that happens within those intense four months of just shooting what would you say the ratio is between those two things because in my experience working on things like this theater film and so forth where you are working on the fly it tends you need you need a pretty high ratio for it to, you know, the finished product to come about. Right. The thing is, is that before you kind of get to make your own film, uh, you go into the program. It's a three-year program. Mm -hmm. You go into the program as a second year, and you are pretty much working on every and any possible set that you can get your hands on. Uh, And there you learn from your upper-year students. Uh, You don't really get the jobs that kind of qualify for anything regarding mistakes like you don't get the jobs that your would uh, yeah exactly yeah. so you run around and you learn and you observe and you kind of soak in as much as you can and then by the time you get into your next year you have at least somewhat of an idea of doing so your um, margin for error is a little bit lower now one thing that you told me once and this was a little bit ago so mm-hmm. I don't know where this went was that you were proposing for the film program that there be a mandatory uh, minor, was it, or a deg- or work in a mm-hmm. different subject to, to give people something to write about? Yeah, has that has that come about in any respect? Has your has your view on that evolved or yeah, like absolutely. Circumstances? That's, that's a great question. I think it's uh, if anything, I support that more so this year. Um, although the film program is extremely intensive, they don't really uh, cater for doing a minor or a double major. Um, I find that we're taught to be writers and directors writer and director sometimes, or sometimes just a director, but those stories are twice as important. Where you're getting those stories, how you're being inspired by them, like who who they're derived from are so incredibly important, especially if like you're learning the craft on how to communicate those. Um, and sometimes I think that's kind of uh, overlooked in the program, and I do feel as though people should have kind of an outer source. For example, Breakaway is definitely about Jenny's mother. Um, 
and about her childhood. Uh, a lot of what comes out of Nelson and Lou, which is a film by Kate Dow, um, is derived from her personal experiences uh, dealing with suicide. And I don't know, we need to be given range to explore those topics, to write creatively, to um, have like spend time developing ideas so that we don't just learn the production aspect of it, we learn the creation. Well, correspondingly, too, one thing that's kind of a pet peeve of mine is when writers only write about being writers. <laughs> because that's something that I, like, uh, what, what was it? Um, Peter Bogdanovich, the movie he made recently, because I like Peter Bogdanovich. Peter Bogdanovich, Peter Bogdanovich a lot, but he made a movie recently because he makes screwball comedies. That's mm-hmm. what he does. That's what he likes to do. Um, and it had Imogen Poots in it, Owen Wilson, and a great cast. But it's very much, you know, everything. Everything in the movie is is informed by being somebody close to to film production, to theater production, mm-hmm. and that's interesting as somebody who's part of that. But I also realize that this is probably substantially less enticing because it does feel rarefied in that respect, especially because working in the creative industry full time is necessarily, as you're saying, such an immersive job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that's that's completely true. I'd say, if anything, some of the good things that have come out of it is that we take some creative writing courses, especially with some students. Um, and uh, those are really quite beneficial. I know there's a film this year where the construction or the idea had come out of a 437 creative writing course. Uh, the film is called Knockers. It's directed by Michelle Olsen. Uh, and, uh, Promising the, title. Yeah, very, very <laughs> hilarious. It's it's about boobs it's about blades it's about petty jealousy say okay um, so that's <laughs> also that's also it. what the series nip tuck was about if i recall correctly <laughs> um so yeah i think uh if anything it's so incredibly beneficial to have that and with Persistence of Vision, because Persistence of, of Vision has almost the character of an anthology because so many of the creators work on each other's work, would you say that there is a theme to the programs this year? Oh, um, there, you know, there usually isn't a theme. If anything, uh, I'd say maybe personal stories kind of take a hold of this one. Um, but they, they usually range, it's a wide range of several different genres, um, especially coming from the third-year films because those are handpicked by uh, select judges who kind of look at the student scripts and then decide which films get to be made, whereas fourth-year films are kind of free, free-form. free um, Whoever wants to direct can direct. So there is no really uh, theme, but I think that's something that POV should definitely consider. Um, but just because it is a showcase of the end of the year, yeah. people don't be, want to be making films about a specific theme. They want pe- yeah. something that they'll put on their resume. You know, I made this. Right. And the great thing is, is that we, yeah, we get to we own these films by the end of the day. Um, we put our own money into it. So uh, it is our name. It is our ownership. We can submit to any festival that we want to. Uh, yeah. And we do everything by the book. So um, there's a lot of time and effort put into producing and making sure that things are legitimate things are done to the law according to vancouver city guidelines or to the um uh definitely the different um man what are they called i'm just slipping up regulations regulations yeah yeah so you're not not doing any outlaw filmmaking no (laughs) no (laughs) 
<laughs> probably easier to do now than at any point previously. You know what? There might be one film that kind of fits that category. It's called, uh, this is a shout out to Pop Life, directed by Sam Maseni. <laughs> Um Definitely a lot of girl filmmaking in there. Yeah, there's a lot of that. I was thinking about this because one of the things we're reviewing later is a double feature of Mumblecore movies at the Cinematheque. Oh. Andrew Bajowski movies. And I'm thinking about it because, um, like, when I think about it, like, Joe Swanberg made one of my favorite movies, which is Drinking Buddies. Mm-hmm. He's a Mumblecore filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Same with, like, the Duplass brothers. They work with Jason Bloom now. Like, there's, there's a, Lena Dunham's on HBO, right? Yeah. Like, the, is she still on HBO? I'm not sure. Things are happening. She was on HBO for a pretty (laughs) substantial stretch. Uh, But what I realize about that is that this is a style of filmmaking that is really stripped down in favor of authenticity. But when you get guys like Jason Bloom making it, it becomes very lucrative. Because Jason Bloom will make you, will, will like, Jason Bloom's like the David Carradine of directing. Because David Carradine made more movies than probably any credited actor because he worked for lunch and a carton of cigarettes. <laughs> so, like, when you think about that, it's just the ability to keep it afloat. Jason Bloom can make, he's batting about, ha- batting about 500 success batting up 500 success movies for the lunch table at a mm-hmm. big one. So I think he will survive. <laughs> and there's there's interesting things to think about there. Apropos of your personal output, because you're graduating this year. Uh, I have one more term left. You have one more term yeah. left. It's, you know, UBC's unofficial motto is five is the new four. <laughs> so there's, there is nothing... There's, there's nothing to be ashamed about there. Yeah, I feel like any person I know that's in fourth year, I, I'm like, so, you know, what are you going to do after summer graduating? They're like, oh, I'm going, you know, I have one more term left. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> but for you in this case, what what is the, the future in the film industry for you? Um, that, man, that is a question that pretty much everybody in my year has asked one another, but without saying And I imagine parents as well. Yeah. (laughs) Well, people who are kind of critical of the industry and Mm -hmm. that can kind of come onto us in the same way where, um, we learn about, we learn, we learn about the things to avoid, um, most of the time going into the industry Mm -hmm. or working for a production house or joining a union means that you kind of become a machine. You work for the money and the money is good. That's Mm -hmm. great. But um, do you get a creative output? Not so much. So uh, it's definitely split between um, there are people in my program who definitely want to join a union, start putting in the hours, and then getting kind of a union membership, and then they get to work on big productions. Mm -hmm. Or there are people who want to kind of take a freelance route, try and work in smaller production companies, make money there through, like, assistant editing. Um, There are people who move to L.A. or move to Toronto, um, I know of a girl named Olivia Sorley, who's now uh, cutting trailers uh, down in Los Angeles, and she's doing a fantastic job, and that's kind of the place for her. Um, and we all are pursuing this beautiful narrative of the fact that we could maybe write our own things and direct them once in a while while making money. <laughs> Apropos of that, if you had a dream project right now, what would it be? Oh, man, I think it would be be able to make a an indie film on a grant with all of my friends from the program. That would be the absolute dream. About what? Um, I think it would be, I have been kind of teasing around the idea of uh, really looking back into my heritage and writing about Turkey and my childhood there. Um, But one of the factors that kind of goes into that is the fact that I know for a fact that I would need to film it in Turkey. I don't think I could substitute a location for it. So the ideal would be to (laughs) fly all of my friends and people that I trust over to Turkey with all the camera and gear that I know um, and uh, film something that's quite scary to me that's interesting to think about because i've seen a lot of like you know the the turkish movies like the turkish batman 
the, the Turkish <laughs> Rambo. Yeah. Let's not talk about Turkish okay. cinema. <laughs> no. no, it's definitely it's growing, and I'd say, there, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's. Uh, only some select uh, cinematographers yeah. and directors that I'd say to really look out for, but I do believe that Turkish cinema is growing, um, and it's allowing space for younger filmmakers to kind of get out there. It's substantial industry, though. Like they're 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 making a living at it. I mean, I'm sure the television industry of Turkey is oh. is making a bang of their buck. Yeah. Um, there are so many shows that people in the Middle East watch, like Turkish shows, and they come to Turkey just to see the places that they've been filmed in, and it's really, yeah. Huh. I don't know. I don't even watch Turkish films when I grew up there. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> hey, food for thought. That'd be a hell of an undertaking. Yeah. Well, um, maybe in the future. You never know. The good thing about it is that now I have... I have not only friends, but people who I trust, and I know that they know their job and that they can do it well. And I walk away from this program not only having an alumni that I can get jobs from, but a group of people where if I wanted to start a production company together, I know that, you know, if we could do it. And that's great. That's fantastic. So much of the program is about the people that you meet there. Sure, it's about the things that you make, but these are our first films. Um, sometimes we get really hard on ourselves um, for not being like the perfect thing or it didn't turn out the right way or it's not exactly what you thought. It's never going to be exactly what you thought it would be, but we have to cut ourselves some slack. This is just the beginning of like what we want to do and what we want to continue doing. So yeah, maybe we'll look back on these later, POV 28, 29, and kind of make fun of ourselves. Hey, I, so. I still got the DVD from 2015. Now, just to be clear, if we want to see the crucible of that union, POV is on this Saturday and Sunday. Where and when? Exactly. So it's uh, the 20th and 21st of this month. It is going to be in the Frederick Wood Theater. Um, The first night starts at doors open at 5 p.m. And there's a program one and two. uh, And in between is a 35 minute intermission. Day two starts a little bit earlier at 4 p.m. And then goes all the way until I believe. Let me double check. It goes all the way until 8.15, and then there is an award ceremony and after party, which will be held at the Great Hall in the AMS Student Nest at 8.30, which I recommend you coming to because awards are extremely fun, and it's good to root for what you want. I can imagine. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll certainly be there. I'm excited to see you there, Jake. I'm excited to be there. Dita Sue, it's been a thrill to have you in the studio, and I will see you on, I'll see you on Sunday. Thanks so much for having me. Cheers. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, we're going to play you a song, actually, from... Uh, Anushka Shankar, who you may uh, know as the either sister of Nora Jones or um, more more likely the uh, daughter of Ravi Shankar. Uh, she's coming to the to the Chan Center again, and she has uh, her people have gladly shared with us uh, her album. We're going to play a couple songs from that during the show. The first of those is "The Sun Won't Set," featuring you guessed it, Nora Jones. Uh, I, I quite uh, I like Nora Jones a, a decent amount, and. Uh, I hope you like this song. We're going to play that for you, then some ads and PSAs, and then uh, we'll be back with a pre-recorded interview and some reviews. Uh, I'm Jake Clark. This is still the Art Support, and uh, enjoy. Nah, nah. 
We are so happy because Fun Drive 2019 is officially over. What a great feeling. To everyone who donated their time, their energy, and their money, the people who forgot to donate now but will online at citr.ca slash donate, those who couldn't donate this year but will next year, and to our community as a whole. CITR and Discorder just want to say... of CITR and Discorder, but are you a true friend? Get a Friends of CITR and Discorder card for $20 for discounts around downtown at Little Sisters Book and Art Emporium, Sikora's Classical Records, The Cinematheque, Final Records, and The Fall Tattooing.
Hello again. Um, I'm just dropping back in to introduce our next interview with a gentleman named Al LaFrance. He's affiliated with Hunch Festival, uh, which is being put on by himself and uh, Stephanie Morian Robert, who you may remember from our Blindside review uh, last year. Uh, it's a very fun festival. It's a very fun conversation, and he can probably explain it better than I can. So uh, here you have it. We'll be back shortly. You're listening to CITR 101.9 FM, broadcasting from the unceded Musqueam territory of UBC's Point Grey campus. Did all of that come through very clearly? I hope so. Uh, I'm Jake Clark, and I'm joined in studio today by Al LaFrance, coordinator of the upcoming Hunch Festival, uh, which is a festival of solo theater works. Is that correct? That is correct. Well, it's solo performance. We're not restricting ourselves to just theater. Um, really? Yeah. One of the one of the shows we've got is a tap dance performance that's approximately an hour long. So I, it is happening in a theater, but that's definitely a dance show. That's a robust undertaking for the dancer. Yeah, it's uh, it's incredible. It's Travis Knights, who's like a world renowned uh, tap performer, and I I cannot wait to see. Uh, I I can't wait to see what it's like. I'm just thinking of like the Fred Astaire, Judy Garland kind of thing. Like even then, those are those numbers are like three minutes long. Yeah, so, you, you need a lot of stamina. I imagine yeah. it's not just that. You know, he's got a whole thing figured out. But it's a brand new show. Nobody's seen it at all. It's a world premiere. So I, Tap dancing is an endurance sport. Yeah. Well, that's kind of seeks into our question <laughs> because I was going to ask you to unpack the show, like the, uh, unpack the festival, like yeah. what kind of features are going on. Great. Well, the festival, uh, we've got three like featured shows. The first one is Jason McDonald's Magic Unicorn Island, which is a uh, solo storytelling piece that starts at the very creation of humanity and goes all the way into the very near future. It's just slowly unpacking the entire evolution of humanity somehow. And it's one of the most impressive shows I have ever seen. It won the Georgia Strait Critics Pick when it was here at the Vancouver Fringe uh, a few years ago. I want to say in 2015. This is a show that was retired and we somehow talked Jason into doing it again. Um, but it's uh, it's an incredible piece, and as a solo storyteller, Jason is someone that I very much look up to, and I, I can't wait to see that show again, and I'm so happy that so many people get the opportunity to see a show like that that, that was so successful and so poignant in, in the way that it deals. Like, the, the idea behind the show is that um, children become so fed up with the way that the world has progressed that they move uh, to their own island and start their own nation. And eventually, the country wants to regain control of that nation as well. So uh, a conflict ensues, and it's it's a fascinating ride. Uh, halfway between Greta Thunberg and Peter Pan, huh? Yeah, somewhere in there. Um, I, one thing that you said that was very interesting to me is solo storytelling. Yeah. Because um, there's a piece from the website Beams and Struts. I think Beams and Struts isn't going. Are you familiar? I am not familiar. It was like a kind of an arts website. It's it's not going anymore, but it has become very central to my thinking, as okay. I, I realize now. And they had a piece on theater isn't dying, it's evolving. Okay. And one of their examples was the prevalence of solo shows because they can tour very easily mm -hmm. and they're very personal. So they have that intensity to them. So they're not getting, so it's harder to usurp that in something like television or streaming media or yeah. film. And I was wondering what sort of commonality does this festival provide there? Like what sort of aesthetic or characteristics of solo shows are you trying, are you highlighting here? Uh, well, I think we've got a, a fair variety in what we'll be showing in that like, you know, Jason's is a work of fiction, but it's obviously something he very much cares about. And then on the Friday night, we have a show uh, called Buck, Buck Kapinski. It's by Deanna Flesher, and it's like a... Promising title. <laughs> yeah. It's a, a noir detective solo show, but it's incredibly interactive. It has so much audience participation, and so it breaks down the, you know, it very much breaks down the, uh, the barrier between a solo performer 
and the audience in a way that other shows like don't necessarily do. And then we've got, you know, the tap show, which is very much a performance, which I don't imagine will be all that interactive. So I think we've got a lot of different ways in which we uh, we can see. Like I've always valued the intimacy of solo theater, uh, and I think we've got different levels of that showing through those three shows. And this comes from personal experience too, because yeah. you've toured with a solo show. Uh, the one that I found very interesting was I think I'm dead. Yeah. Which is quite a title. Thank you. <laughs> That's quite a thing to lead with. And you performed that at a series of fringes. So yeah. did that sort of inform how you're putting this together? Like, how do you, how do you see this as a solo performer? I Think I'm Dead is, is the solo show that I'm proudest of so far. Like, it, it was very, a very, very personal thing uh, to do because it deals with depression and suicidal tendencies and insomnia. And it's like, it's, it's a, you know, it's a heavy burden. But... That's sort of what I look for in, in other solo shows, too. Like, I just want someone to bring a unique perspective to something. And I think all the performers we've programmed in, in this edition uh, do that. And it's something I used to run a solo festival back in Montreal. I just moved to Vancouver six months ago. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. So back in Montreal for four years, I ran a, a festival there. And it was always uh, the same thing where we would try to find just shows that are, that are just showing something that we haven't seen or, or that's being done in a whole new way. And I think, yeah, I think we're doing it. A fine job of finding those things here. Is it easier to organize here or in Montreal? I'm curious about your, your take on this. You know, it's it's hard to say. Like, I'm not as integrated into the Vancouver scene as I was in Montreal. I lived there for a decade, so uh, you okay. know the, the, the connections. And it's also like a smaller uh, scene in terms of the English community. Like, we ran a bilingual festival there. French is my first language, right? And mm, so, uh, in you know, in a, in a very bilingual city like that, you, mm-hmm. you, you end up doing that. So it's it's. I think it's an entirely different thing programming in either one of those cities because you're you're not targeting the same way, you know, for your audience. It's interesting you mention that because I'm moving to Ottawa in, for September, and uh, I, I'm thinking of opening another radio show there about my utter misunderstanding of the above bilingual <laughs> dynamics, and I call it the Anglophile. Oh yeah, um, where why? What's taking you to Ottawa? That's, I grew up in Aylmer, which is like right on the Gatineau side. Right oh on yeah, side r- right on. Yeah, I know where it is. Yeah, yeah. My my brother lives in Ottawa. It's an it's an interesting place. Yeah, and they have a good fringe there too. They do. I'm doing that. I'm doing. I think I'm dead at the Ottawa Fringe this year in June. For the it's the first time I get to be in that really. Festival. Yeah, I might see you. Yeah, <laughs> that's it's interesting to think about though the the fringe because the fringe crosses like the Maritime Fringe is kind of its own thing, like it's its own cycle. But then from Montreal west, you can do it in sequential order Mm -hmm. so you take like up from florida and then uh, across from montreal yeah and even before montreal you can do london ontario yeah Um, that's where i'm from yeah great well you've got the london fringe right at the beginning of june and yeah there's the ottawa one right after montreal and yeah it just keeps going which is what that's what my summers are and it's it's quite a thing you know because it gets some you see some very interesting shows and it gets this real continuity of it because there's this immense continuity of culture you know you get some very interesting and very direct takes in fringe and i have to imagine with with hunch how many shows are in hunch this year so we have three full-length shows and then a cabaret um a cabaret show on the saturday night oh is that like is that like the the fringe cabaret thing well, sort of. I mean, it's a cabaret show, so we have ten different acts, uh, ten different solo performances of uh, you know different genres, um, and uh, and a host. So yeah. in the dark and lit with flashlights. No, no, just no? you know, okay. <laughs> like run like a normal show. Just a thought. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we can't. Uh, I think the French cabaret is, is very, you know, it's at home in the French setting, but this is this is a different thing. Yeah. Yeah, kind of, kind of, yeah, a little bit. gets weird sometimes. Yeah. Well, now, of the shows that are in here, obviously, it's in, as the organizer, it's very difficult to pick one that is a personal favorite, and I'm sure that there's many that have these, many things to recommend to them, but if there's, if someone can only catch one show, what show would it be? It really depends. I think they all, they all have, like, their different... Um, there are different things that will draw people to them. Um, as I, I, I can't possibly pick between our three, our three babies that we program together. I, I want to make sure that we mention that Stephanie Moran Robert is the person uh, um, that you know. It's the Stephanie Moran Robert Performance Society uh, that is actually putting on the festival, and we we're working on this together. I just want to make sure that we put her name out there. And we we I think we're both in love with all three shows. I can't possibly pick one because she did Blindside last year, yeah. right? Yeah. That that was fun. That was in, we, we we reviewed that. That was a very interesting show. Yeah, Blindside is quite the show, and her new show, uh, Eye Candy, I think is going to be <laughs> happening at this uh, festival as well, uh, at at the Vancouver Fringe this year. I'm not sure exactly what her circuit is this year. That's quite a thing. Now, are there musical performances as well? Because there, there's obviously a lot of for somebody who performs like solo acoustic, that's mm-hmm. like an open mic thing, but that's less of a yeah. Um, in the in the cabaret, we do have some acts that are uh, very music based, uh, not in the the three main sh- shows, but as part of the cabaret, we will have some musical acts. Any loop pedals shenanigans? Yeah, do you, you know Devin Moore? Not personally, <laughs> but are you aware of her of her work? Yes. Yeah, so Devin Moore will be part, uh, in in part of the cabaret, and and she she is all about those loop pedals. She's, I think. I think she's mastered them. She doesn't think that, but I, but I think she has. I'm an outsider. I don't know how to work a loop pedal. And this is Hunch's first year. Yeah, that's correct. Is there a plan for the future of Hunch? Yes, this? more festivals, <laughs> more editions every year. Um, absolutely, we want to we want to get this thing going uh, year after year. I think there's so many you know there's other cities that have the solo festivals, and I think it's a really uh, particular thing to, to to bring focus to. And I think it's a I think it's really important to keep doing that. Um, and so we want to keep it going year after year after year. Do you have a hunch as to where you'd bring it next? I mean. You know, it's a year from now around the same place. Right now, I'm mostly focused on getting this one done. Fair enough. That's a reasonable goal. And for our, for our audience, where and when can we uh, when, can we catch the festival? So it's May 9th to 11th at the Redgate Review stage. Uh, all the programming, all the info, hunchfest.com. And we are at Hunch Festival on all forms of social media. All right. That's awesome. Al, it was lovely to have you in the studio. Thank you so much for having and, me. And um, over to whoever just played this. <laughs> That was our interview with Al LaFrance regarding Hunch Festival, which seems fascinating. Uh, wish I was here to check it out. I'll definitely have to see if I can swing by his show at the Ottawa Fringe this July. Now, joining me in the studio is, of course, our correspondent, Sarah. Hi. Now, you recently saw Momix. Yes. What is Momix? That is an excellent question, honestly. Okay, so um, before going into this, I thought it was a dance show. And then I went in, and it's more of a dance mixed with Cirque du Soleil but also not so much dance so it's but you know it's something different it's it's something let me say that um sounds like it yeah um so I don't even know how to describe it there were um people twirling ribbons fire (laughs) no um so riding elephants how many there were eight about 16 pieces um two acts let's say there was an intermission and so the first one started 
it was with three dancers, female dancers, and they were like using these light up things. They weren't doing much. They were just like neon rotating them. Or? Yeah, stuff like it was like uh, yeah. And so I was like, okay, so this is more of the you know using the props and all. But then the next piece started and it wasn't like that at all it was more acrobatic there were two dancers they were like you know holding each other up doing lifts and I don't know how anyone has that much control over their body but you know yeah it was so throughout the whole thing it was like this you thought you understood finally what Viva Mumix was about and then they were like nope it's not this. <laughs> um, but that made it so good because y- you kept wondering what's going to come next. Like, there would be one person dancing on a table, and then the next thing you see is there are five people just using these really fluffy skirts and normally, like, dancing, quote unquote, dancing normally. So, I- I- I've had house parties like this. <laughs> Yeah. Seems like a fun event. <laughs> it was really fun. And, like, it, the thing is, okay, I have to give it up to the um, artistic director, Moses Pendleton. He also cho- like choreographed most of the pieces. Uh, the thing he did is he basically took dance and props, mixed them, and took a little more of the props, let's say, and made something incredible because... You know, the way he used the props, you wouldn't think of using them like that. For example, I said there was a piece where a guy danced on a table. You know, when you think that, you think... You probably don't want to know what I'm thinking. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. But it wasn't like that. Everything he did with that table, he was over it, under it, next to it, balancing on it, like... I don't know how anyone would think to use it that way, but Moses Pendleton did, and honestly, it was amazing. Props to him. Yeah, I, I do want to say this. A man named Moses Pendleton does not immediately occur to one as a uh, uh, choreographic inventor, but I'm glad that this is his contribution. Oh, my God. he There's his um, – in the program, it's like – oh God – wish I could speak. Anyways, um, there is stuff he did. Apparently, he staged um, dances for the Paris Opera Ballet, the Joffrey Ballet, like something that was staged at the Scala. So he did some amazing stuff. Very prestigious houses. And like the Momix was just as amazing as something you would see at the Joffrey Ballet or at the Paris Opera Ballet. It was not normal dancing there weren't like i because i'm a dancer i usually when i go to dance shows Mm -hmm. i make sure to see how good the dancers are technically you're thinking about it yeah i i'm always judging their feet judging their um how they hold their arms and stuff like that but with this you couldn't do much of that because there weren't that much of dancing it was more of how they use the props or how how they used each other let's say sounds very acrobatic yeah and yeah, there were some that were really acrobatic, and honestly, I, I again, I don't know how anyone can hold another person above their head with one hand while holding them with their other hand. Like I, 
Anyways, it was amazing. Great and practice. there was one that I went with Lua. Um, we both were really um, amazed by it. The piece is called Paper Trails. Mm-hmm. They basically used paper. It wasn't like normal A4 sized paper. It was really long. But the way they used it, they started with rolling on the paper. And then they also, okay, I want to add to this. There were a lot of um, lights and, yeah, so lights used. So, yeah. Chiaroscuro going Yeah, on. they project, projected um, a lot of stuff. So they were using these white papers. But because they projected the, I don't know, like words, at one point there were a lot of carrots. Like, ca- like the word carrot was written a lot. I don't know why, honestly, but it was interesting. Anyway, so the <laughs> the paper looked like a green screen. It was, I don't know how, it was, I don't know, my brain kind of like failed me at that point. <laughs> so you'd recommend it? I would definitely. I mean, where the, and when can we catch it? The thing is, um, this was their last show. Oh. So they are Washington-based. Um, this was the, yeah, this was the closing show of the season. But, I mean, I'm pretty sure they would come back. Keep an ear to the ground for yes. that. Because if they're Washington, Washington State-based? Um, or Washington, D.C.? <laughs> That's a really good question. Washington, it's, Connecticut. Washington, there's a Washington, Connecticut? It says Washington, Connecticut. <laughs> Sure. Okay. <laughs> they're probably gonna be back. Yes. Yeah. And honestly, if you're ever in the states or anywhere that they're performing, go see it. It keeps you on your toes. I don't know. Moses Pendleton is a creative genius. I want to say. It's interesting that so you and Lua saw this. Yes. And Lua really liked it as well. Yes. So it's kind of funny because Lua and I also saw Bed and Breakfast at the Arts Club, which is also a very uh, characteristic, uh, spatially, I would say, innovative show mm-hmm. that she also really liked. It was her, she, uh, she told me specifically to say this because she's in Brazil currently, but that this is her favorite play of the year. And uh, Bed and Breakfast, uh, for those unaware, is uh, the work of uh, playwright Mark Crawford, who plays one half of everybody in the show. The other person is Paul Dunn. And the two of them uh, play a gay couple, uh, that that would be just uh, just just for clarity, uh, Drew and uh, other guy. Um, other guy. No, I have my, uh, the problem is my handwriting is really terrible, and I really need to. Brett and Drew, yes. Brett and Drew. Uh, okay. Uh, they uh, who decide to move to a small town, Brett's hometown. Uh, Brett's played by Mark Crawford in northern Ontario, ish, mm-hmm. so central Ontario, I would say. Um, and to start up a bed and breakfast in a house he inherits. And things happen in this. The, the thing about this story is that it's very interesting that it is with a gay couple. Mm-hmm. Uh, because this sort of fish out of water story with a straight couple would have been quite predictable. Yeah. Uh, but there are a f- quite a few things the play does to complicate that and to make the most out of it. And the first of those things is the casting choices, because every single character is played by either Dunn or Crawford. That's really interesting. There are about 20 characters in this show. That is impressive. <laughs> Across a variety of genders, ages, and accents. Oh, yeah. Wait, I didn't know. I thought all the characters were male. I don't know why. No. Nope. So they p- played. There's a lesbian couple. Too. Damn. Yeah. Wow. And they do this. They are able to. Both of them are such capable physical actors that they are able to 
telegraph this very cleanly. There wasn't a single point in this play, and this is impressive because this play is over two hours long, where I was like, no, this character doesn't come across. The body language is that excellent to the point where there are multiple characters. There are many occasions where there are about at least four different, so at least the actors are playing at least two different people on set, on the stage, and it works perfectly fine. Just oh it, they have it incredibly, they have it done incredibly well. And Crawford wrote this apparently for two actors, which is really interesting because like the, just the array of different accents, the array of different vocal tones they're using, each actor is playing to their strengths, but it's not so that it seems the characters are skewed that way. For example, Mark Crawford plays uh, a drag queen with a quite a deep voice. And he is himself a very tall man with a, uh, I'd say, almost bass voice. Mm-hmm. If he, w- if he could uh, project that low. And th- between him and Dunn, they also have a Letterkenny-like array of sort of regional Ontario accents. Which is interesting because this premiered in the Thousand Islands Playhouse, which is actually right near Ottawa. <laughs> the Thousand Islands area. I won't open a menswear shop up there and call it Thousand Island Dressing. <laughs> Had to put that yes, in there. Please do that. Yeah, the, uh, some of the some some little things, some little bits of wit in there is Party, which is an organization called Preaching Abstinence and Restraint to Youth. Thought that was funny. Um, there is a, a large number of these sort of widget characters that would, again, if this was expanded into a series, I could see that I could see each of these characters. Like you can get a very clear idea of how they play into the dynamic. Another thing that this does that the other sort of fish out of water narratives wouldn't have necessarily is fear because let's let's face it moving from toronto to a smaller town in central ontario is a dicier proposition for a gay couple than it is a straight couple Mm -hmm. on principle yeah and they make a point that the town itself is not extremely homophobic on the face of it but there's distrust of them there's a feeling of fear the First act ends with a very sudden shock to that. But in the end, what this play is about is finding community. And because it is a gay couple and because they delve into those issues quite deeply, like a significant part of the play is that. And you couldn't do that if you had, again, if you had a straight couple, that simply wouldn't really be there. Uh, Actually, you know, if you had an interracial couple, it might be. But not in the same way. Yeah. Um, And you could really do that they mind that quite distinctly and that made for a very interesting show this is not the show is it doesn't feel long which is again impressive because this is a longer show this is a two and this is two hours ten minutes approximately and it really does feel quite full it does feel like these are almost these are kind of virtuoso performances because each one of them is affecting and there's reveals from these characters so you do actually see the actor kind of dissolve into these different characters that's pretty amazing it does sound amazing. I want to go see it now. We do recommend this. It's playing till May 4th at the Granville Island stage. So check it out. Should be fun. Um, we're going to play us some PSAs. The show's probably going to go a little longer today. Um, we're going to play us some PSAs and a song by Marisa, who is a Portuguese fado singer. She's coming to the chant tonight. I'm going to go see her, and oh. we will review that for uh, next show. It's kind of fitting because one of the first reviews I ever did was a review of Carmino and Sarah Tavares, who are also Fado singers. Uh, so that's Maritza coming up. Maritza coming up. Ken, Ken Medera. Um, I apologize to Portuguese speakers for my pronunciation. <laughs> I speak Italian. Um, and then some PSAs, and we'll be back shortly for some other features. And then bid you a good evening. Cheers.
mais tem de acontecer no mundo Para inverter o teu coração para mim Que quantidade de lágrimas devo deixar cair Que flor tem que nascer para ganhar o teu amor Por esse amor, meu Deus, eu faço tudo Declamo os poemas mais lindos do universo a ver se te convenço Que a minha alma Nasceu para ti Será preciso um milagre Para que o meu coração se alegre Juro não vou desistir Faça chuva ou faça sol Porque eu preciso de ti para seguir Quem me dera Abraçar-te no outono, verão e primavera Quiçá viver além uma quimera Herdar a sorte e ganhar teu coração Quem me dera Abraçar-te no outono, verão e primavera Quiçá viver além uma quimera Dar a sorte e ganhar teu coração Será preciso uma tempestade Para perceberes que o meu amor é de verdade Te procuro nos altos da cidade Nas luzes dos faróis Nos meros mortais como nós Resistente como em bombeiro Por ti Eu vou onde nunca iria Por ti eu sou o que nunca seria Quem me dera Abraçar-te no outono, verão e primavera Quiçá viver além uma quimera Herdar a sorte e ganhar teu coração Abraçar-te no outono, verão e primavera Quiçá viver além uma quimera Herdar a sorte e ganhar teu coração
to tell you that Vancouver has a hazard problem. Mass evictions. Mass evictions. Unfair rent increases. What happens to rent control and protection from unfair evictions? If these or other housing matters concern you, you may be interested in joining the Vancouver Tenants Union. For more information, visit tenantsunion.ca. Falta-me bem mais, tenho a certeza Do que este piano Man, they were nihilists, man huh? They kept saying they believed in nothing Nihilists The Great Escape from Nihilism, Rediscovering Our Passion in Late Modernity by Dr. Gordon E. Karkner involves a journey out of the prison of contemporary nihilism and into a meaningful life trajectory. Rooted in the work of Canadian premier philosopher Charles Taylor, this book is a relevant read for students and faculty. You can find it at the UBC or Regent bookstores. Who's the f***ing nihilist around here, you bunch of f***ing crybabies? Oh, I love that so very much. <laughs> because I like the Big Lebowski and I don't have a lot of use for nihilism. So, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, we got a couple more things for you. We got a couple more musings. Uh, both of which are film related. Both of which are related to the Cinematheque. Uh, now, I saw the uh, double feature of Mumblecore films. Mm-hmm. Andre Bajalski's films. I mentioned that a little earlier. Um, by the way, one more thing, actually, before I start this. Uh, we mentioned the Bill Reed Gallery last show, which is doing Women in Waterways. Uh, I do want to touch on that really briefly. Uh, I can't really comment on this a lot of the time, but I do feel that it does deserve to be noticed. The Bill Reed Gallery is a very interesting venue that has very interesting art. And there is um, a lot of very, very, very interesting artwork in here, particularly one piece uh, is a trunk. Uh, with a drum and uh, a jar of stones resembling salmon eggs. And one thing this really does highlight, because this is about um, First Nations women and symbolism of waterways, relevant thing, uh, you know, especially considering what's happening, that's going to happen with water. Uh, We're going to get a lot more of it in a little bit Mm -hmm. uh, with less ocean life. So that kind of consciousness really does help. Uh, It's some very interesting art. That's at the Bill Reed Gallery. I highly encourage you to check it out. Now let's talk about Mumblecore, which is something I am significantly more qualified to comment on because I feel a lot of things right now about it. So Andrew Bajowski is with the Duplass brothers and Joe Swanberg and a bunch of other people you probably haven't heard of uh, as guys who made movies without scripting any dialogue and may want you to know that. Like Joe Swanberg, for the record, made one of my favorite movies of all time, which is Drinking Buddies with Olivia Wilde, Nana Kendrick, and uh, Jake Johnson and uh, Rod Livingston. And it's interesting that I saw this picture of this double feature of Brzezowski films because the first one, Mutual Appreciation, which is a second film, um, has a character in it that uh, reminded me of Ron Livingston's character from Drinking Buddies. Kind of an older guy record producer. He's bald in this, so didn't look like him at all. But um, maybe he looks like me in a little while. But... (laughs) Uh, how do I, how do I put this? Mutual appreciation is bloody wretched. Mutual appreciation was physically painful for me to sit through. Uh, now, I, I, I'm not going to tee off on Andrew Bajelski here for a couple reasons. Firstly, he is the most appealing part of his own movie. He's acting in this, uh, and his character is actually pretty interesting in it. Uh, his, his character, he's a really geeky looking guy and geeky sounding guy and every character he's played acts like it. So at least he knows what he looks like on camera. But the, 
the main guy playing this, this guy, the Alan, I, 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 the, the character's name is Alan. So mutual appreciation, this guy, Alan, who's sort of a power pop indie musician kind of guy, comes to New York, crashes with his friends, one of whom is, um, is, is the director, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, who are still working it. They're still doing the post-grad thing. If you've seen Girls, you know the tone, the, the, the Lena Dunham show, not mm-hmm. the, the people. But yeah. <laughs> uh, you know the tone of this film almost exactly and it it really has a lot of the problems except there's no other way for me to um say this that alan is this kind of goblinoid creep of a human being like just almost like he he is like if you crossed ben shapiro with jim morrison this is the unholy abomination you would get he is he's impossible to sympathize with he's extremely annoying to watch and the problem with this is that i'm gonna it sounds like i'm teeing off on the actor a lot Mm -hmm. because the thing about mumblecore is is that you have only limited ability to act. And that's one thing the Drinking Buddies does really well, is get these actors to play characters, despite the fact that these characters aren't really scripted. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mutual Appreciation, none of Bajowski's films really end. They kind of just stop. And with Mutual Appreciation, that leaves you just very annoyed and irritated. And I, I realize this, is that would this movie would have been made in the early-ish 2000s. This would have been made mm-hmm. before before the 08 crisis, for example, which I think is the relevant date here. Certainly pre-2016. Um, the, the thing about this movie that kind of bothered me uh, was that this movie was made within a decade of the point when the indie sphere would have had Chris Eichemann in it. And now, Chris Eichemann, for those unfamiliar, is one of my favorite actors of all time. He was in all of Whit Stillman's movies, bar his most recent one, and he was also in Kicking and Screaming by Noah Baumbach, which is sort of the prototype of these. Sort of post-collegiate malaise movies, except Kicking and Screaming is scripted. Uh, also has Parker Posey in it, which makes literally anything much better. Um, and this is, a lot of these, uh, a lot of them, actually, the, the, the second feature, which is Bajalski's first movie, which is Funny Haha, um, actually does kind of work because between the two of them, you get almost the effect of a deboned kicking and screaming. Because kicking and screaming is surprisingly deliberate it, for what it depicts. It's something like Richard Linklater's Slacker, for example, which comes before that, not, not, doesn't really have that feeling. But this is kind of what happens when you split the difference. Because there's a plot to this. And there's a plot, there's more of a plot to Funny Haha. So Funny Haha's character, Marnie, um, is someone who's legitimately trying to figure out, you know, what to do with her life. And she's kind of surrounded by these scrubbish dudes, including Bajalski, whose character is less sympathetic in this one. Um, including, well, the guy who plays Alan shows up as a guy who gets beaten up by preschoolers, which, yeah, that's per- that's a fitting role for this character. Uh, and a couple of other guys, this one dude, Alex. There, there are, th- these are, these aren't the names of the actors, by the way. It's, it's just that I, I need to save time. We, we kind of run it, we're running over time as it is. <laughs> um, and then, uh, assorted a, a, a other gentlemen, uh, gentlemen, none of whom are really like stellar examples of like like Marnie is as a character like really kind of adorable and Norman Pleasure, you know I should I should look this up because she does deserve quite a bit of credit. Um the uh oh, the idea behind it is uh starring Kate Dolenmeyer. Kate Dolenmeyer. Um who like really does deserve f- full credit here because she's um like 
you do care about this character because like this character has legitimate problems. Like, she might have a legitimate drinking problem. She's trying to figure out, you know, trying to figure things out. And you know what? This movie was made contemporaneously to American Pie. Mm-hmm. I want that to be I want that that to be known as that Mumblecore and the American Pie films exist. I would say in the same universe because the, the target demographic of American Pie aged 5 years in the films and 10 years in real life because nobody like American Pie did not like still mm-hmm. shot lower but and then they aged into the demographic where they could be confused and mumble all the time. And that's what happened with Mumblecore. I firmly believe that. I don't think that happened with the creators of Mumblecore, mind you. Uh, at least it didn't happen with the Duplass brothers, and I don't think it happened with Joe Swanberg. But all of these people made good, to a degree. And Bajowski did as well. And I find that very interesting, because these films in that way are kind of a time capsule. Uh, Funny Haha is worth checking out. I, I really cannot endorse mutual appreciation in any <laughs> way, shape, or form. I just really deeply dislike the movie, and that might have just been my problems with its casting, but just tonally, it didn't have any of the spine or heart that uh, Funny Haha did. And that was interesting to me. Another thing I want to uh, spotlight at the Cinematheque is the Poverty Row features, which is about as far away from the opposite of Mumblecore as you can get. Actually, no, one commonality. These movies were also made for almost nothing. Um... The Poverty Row features are a collection of double bills of pre-code exploitation films made in Poverty Row Studios, which is the joke for them. These, now, pre-code, like, you know, you're familiar with the production code, the Hollywood code? The what? The production code. No. So in 1933, a bunch of, uh, uh, I will call them obnoxious pencil necks, okay. pushed through regulations that severely censored film for... 25 to 30 years. These were slowly broken down, as with most obscenity laws by the by the 60s. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, my opinion on obscenity laws is that they're useless gibberish purloined by insecure people in terms of misguided other ideas. You may disagree with me. I think that's incorrect. And the general thing that I find very fascinating about pre-code film, pre-code film is still elliptic. You can't show sex in a pre-code film. Mm-hmm. You could. There might have been able to at some point, but like Hedy, Hedy Lamar was naked in ecstasy, for example. Uh, and if you take that sentence out of context, it sounds like something very different. Uh, probably something that happened at rave in the nineties. Uh, but uh, you get really these sort of films that do feel like they exist in a universe where they're telling stories that are just one degree closer to life. That doesn't necessarily mean the movies are polished or like they are of their time. The two movies I saw recently are the vampire bat Mm -hmm. and The Sin of Nora Moran. I'm also going to be seeing, uh, later on, I'm going to be seeing, uh, I'm going to be seeing things. Uh, You know, I get hit in the head very frequently, and I think it's catching up with me. We all forget stuff. But the, um, the, uh, the vampire bat, to start with, is, um, uh, is a, I want to say, it's kind of a horror film, but not really. Uh, it's oh, it's wait. tonally speaking, uh, veers between horror and comedy. Mm-hmm. All these movies are pretty short, by the way. They're, they're like 65 minutes long, and they're preceded each oh, by okay. a newsreel and a cartoon, which is just delightful because one of these <laughs> cartoons, the one before the sin of Norm Moran, is fun in balloon land, which is just this beautiful piece of imagination. Oh, it really is. One thing I really like about these films, and about these films, you're going to say, are they good? They're entertaining. Mm-hmm. These are fun to watch. They're they're legitimately enjoyable. And the thing that I really do like about this is I have a small obsession with E.E. E. Cummings, mm-hmm. uh, which has forestalled my ability to make fun of his last name. And 
E. Cummings wrote very compellingly on film, especially on animation, because he lived at a time when that was kind of magical. And Cummings was childlike in a lot of his poems. So he, having read his work on that, uh, he wrote an article on film called Wake Up and Patronize, Patronize Your Local Wake Up and Dreamery. And when you, I see these cartoons, I do understand that. I do understand looking through that as, as an adult and feeling this sort of sense of joy and magic and human imagination. I kind of need that. I've get, been feeling a little down recently. Mutual appreciation did not help. Um, what I'm seeing later will be false faces and damaged lives, <laughs> which, that, oh, wow. interestingly <laughs> enough... Uh, the jokes are kind of forestalling if I had, like, a reality TV joke there. False Faces is a mix of comedy and horror centering around a drunk plastic surgeon, which okay. is what would have made Nip Talk watchable. Uh, and uh, Damaged Lives is uh, Edgar G. Ulmer's first movie. If you don't know who Edgar G. Ulmer is, he shows up twice here. The other one is Strange Illusion, which, Illusion, which I own on DVD. It's actually really good. Uh, that and uh, thing Mama, which described Mamba, which is described as a crazed colonialist drama. Those are showing on a different day. Uh, Edgar G. Ulmer was uh, he, he immigrated to Hollywood in the 30s and produced basically exploitation films. He produced, uh, among other things, he produced Moon Over Harlem, which was one of the first um, fully. Uh, well, they called them race pictures at the time because it was a fully black cast designed for fully black audiences. Uh, one of the first ones of those that made that actually did cross over to a degree. And again, like this is theaters were segregated at this point. That was difficult. Uh, and Edgar G. Ulmer was a man who had this intense grasp of narrative and this intense grasp of filmic storytelling. And things like Damaged Lives show you him and Sam Fuller were kind of masters of this because they took these educational features exploitation <laughs> films and they made them into something that was really worth watching i'm looking forward to seeing both of these um at any rate they will be better to watch than mutual appreciation i highly recommend checking out any of these that you can because they are just really fun to watch uh that's down and dirty in gower gulch which is just a terrific title yeah. um uh, the Poverty Row was Gower Street in Los Angeles, is why you're asking. It's between Sunset Boulevard and the Paramount lot. Uh, and these these features really are worth checking out because, you know, the pre-code, a lot of these are public domain, too. Mm -hmm. So you can probably find versions of these uh, online if you want to share them with other people. But as with any film, I'll say this, it is worth watching in the theater. Uh, and these ones are definitely worth that. They're a great double bill, fun date night. <laughs> and that, except mutual appreciation. Yeah. Yes, it beats the piss out of mutual. I, I really shouldn't. I, I feel kind of bad on how bad I beat on mutual appreciation, but it was singularly distasteful to watch. <laughs> these these are just tremendously uh, easier to watch for various reasons. That yeah. um, that might be my preference talking, but that's what I'm here for. I'm mm -hmm. a, I'm a critic. Um, I want to play out with one more song from um, Anushka Shankar's coming album because this song actually features another notable thespian, uh, who Vanessa Redgrave, who apart from disgracing herself by working with Roland Emmerich uh, on a very bad film uh, about Shakespeare, has made some pretty outstanding contributions to uh, theater and film. So we will play you out with Remain the Sea. It's uh, Anushka Shankar featuring Vanessa Redgrave. I'm Jake Clark. It's been a pleasure. To, it's my second last broadcast. I am Sarah. I'm here. And uh, we shall see you next week for my farewell show. Cheers.
swallows golden sand whispers she's taking back what's hers her feet are two split continents death of the motherland is not in what we leave behind, she says, but in everything we forget. And you are not so privileged. You are a child of fire and water. The strength to be the storm and to carry it is within you. So storm, she says, and I will carry your every drop. The body is a continent, but may your heart always remain the sea. A genderless blob from Fine, and you're listening to CITR 101.9 FM. One, two, one, two, three, four. Well, I remember what you told me. You said that you would never hold me 
Bye.